It's Friday, November 2nd, and from the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, this is Pennsylvania Legacies. I'm Josh Rollerson. Suppose you have a large pot of money and you want to invest it somewhere to fight climate change. What to do? Well, in that market, these days, American cities like Philadelphia and Pittsburgh are offering some of the best return on investment opportunities around. Not just because those cities care about the environment, but because they're thinking comprehensively about the future. Uh, Somebody said to me one time, the city doesn't have an economic development strategy. And we took a lot of umbrage of that because actually, you know, the strategies we are deploying are the economic development strategy. Whether that it's cleaning or improving our environment or, uh, you know, an an equity conversation um, and workforce development, that is economic development. Pittsburgh and Philly are among 20 U.S. cities already working to reduce carbon emissions that are getting a multi-million dollar boost in those efforts from Bloomberg Philanthropies under its American Cities Climate Challenge. On this episode, we'll hear how they're planning to use that funding to accelerate sustainability and resiliency efforts already well underway. That's coming up. First, though, an update on some recent legislative news from the state capitol. Stay with us. Under Pennsylvania law, private landowners enjoy a certain amount of protection from legal liability when they open their property to the public for purposes of recreation. However, in the past, there's been some ambiguity around exactly what that means, what sorts of activities are included and excluded. Under a bill signed into law by Governor Wolf just last week, the meaning of recreation is clarified somewhat and expanded to include more sorts of uses and places where people recreate. Here to explain what it all means for outdoor recreation in the Commonwealth is PAC's Program Director for Trails and Recreation, Frank McGuire. Hey, Frank. Hey, Josh. Start us off by kind of explaining the background. Act 98 uh, amends. Act 98 would be the bill that just passed. Uh, It amends the Pennsylvania Recreational Use of Land and Water Act. What can you tell us about that original legislation, what it was was supposed to accomplish, its scope, and so on? Yeah, so the original intention of the bill, when the act was first passed, the idea was that uh, land, private land was starting to be posted, no trespassing. Uh, And the intention was that if landowners allowed people to come onto their property uh, without charging them a fee, um, that more people would keep their land open. So think about farmers during hunting season or a trail like the Appalachian Trail that connects up a lot of great public lands but does cross across some ridge tops that, you know, you're not walking in somebody's backyard, uh, but they still need to get from point A to point B. So those those were the original intentions of of passing this law when it when it first came about. So this latest change represents a sort of uh, extension of that or expansion. How big of a change are we talking about? What kinds of activities now are presumably included within this limited liability category? So previously there there were a couple things about it. Uh, they did add in opening up lands for motorized recreation. Uh, they also expressly defined things like trails into the act. Uh, one of the, th- the ambiguities that used to exist in the, the original legislation was natural terrain. Uh, so this idea that you know, people could come across, but you weren't creating something for them. So when we think about natural surface trails or just trails in general, uh, they, f- they fell into this gray area. 
the new legislation uh, improves it in such a way that it does specifically call out trails as one of the recreation resources you can have on your property and you're not opening yourself up to liability. So as you know very well, uh, PEC is involved with all kinds of planning and development of trails and greenways all over the Commonwealth. How does this change in the state law impact our work in that area? Well, any changes in the law that encourage more people to open up their lands to the public is a good thing. Uh, really, what we want to see is that people understand that you know when folks are are using these private lands uh, for you know lawful recreational purposes, uh, think about you know you're paddling down a river and you step out of your canoe and onto the stream bank, you know, technically you're trespassing at that moment. Uh, you know, we want to encourage people to let, let folks do that if they need to. We're not talking about people creating party spots on, on the side of rivers, but, you know, just something that might occur because there's a dangerous, some, a hazard in the water or something like that. Same with trails. We want to, uh, because there's so many of the woodlands in Pennsylvania are privately held, we want to encourage more landowners to open up their property to, uh, you know, passive recreation such as hiking, biking, and other things. So when you were talking before about the sort of the classic scenarios like a farmer allowing hunters to use their land during hunting seasons, but presumably also private landowners as a category would include things like land trusts and like local trail organizations and the like. Does this create maybe new opportunities for those groups to expand their reach and advance their mission? Absolutely. So, I mean, yeah, thinking about like land conservancies or sporting clubs or, um, yeah, or trail organizations, uh, they now have an opportunity to reach out to new audiences and, you know, feel more assured. You know, one thing about any of these liability laws is it doesn't stop somebody from suing you, but what it does is it gives you a, a level of, um, of protection that you are able to make these things available and, and encourage people without running any risks later. So when you look at other states that are dealing with similar issues and have put forward legislation along similar lines. What's the, the larger context and what lessons can we draw about any link between liability protection of the sort we've been talking about and economic activity in the, the outdoor recreation sector? Is that a real thing? It is, absolutely. So, you know, almost all 50 states have some version of this law on the books. Some are better than others. And to be honest, I would say Pennsylvania's falls somewhere in the middle. Um, but if you look at a, a state like Vermont, uh, which has a pretty strong recreational use statute, generically, that's what these laws are called. But the recreational use statute in Vermont encourages people to open up their lands. And so they have these amazing trail resources where there is, uh, it's all on private lands, but trail networks have been developed. The communities benefit from uh, vacationers coming there. They create businesses around these opportunities and they, they're able to thrive. And the people still have their own private woodlots, the, the landscapes that they want to have. They're able to post them closed for things like hunting seasons if they want. But the rest of the year, they make that land available for people to enjoy. 
There's a provision in in this legislation that just passed that allows property owners to receive certain kinds of compensation when they allow public use of their lands. Uh, what does that mean exactly? What's the sort of the scope of that exemption? And they're not able to, like, for example, charge admission to their property, right? That would be something else. Right. Yeah. So, you know, that's one of the interesting things about the way this law has been has been amended that it will be interesting to see what, how this plays out. Um, but previously, they couldn't charge admission. And that was really what made the difference. This is not intended for somebody who's running a commercial enterprise, uh, you know, charging a day use fee or something like that. But for instance, uh, you know, this is an opportunity for a trail organization to negotiate with a landowner to build a trail across their property. And for that right, then they can go out and raise money to help that property owner pay taxes. One of the big things that we see in Pennsylvania is uh, as properties, as you know, Pennsylvania has a, an aging population, those large tracts of land that are held by you know, the patriarch of a family that gets divided up in the will, it goes to the six siblings. Um, this is a way to actually keep that property intact because it doesn't become a burden for those people. Uh, so it's a way to pay the taxes on that property uh, to make some, you know, potentially come up with a way to make some improvements to the property to make it more useful. Uh, if you think about, uh, you know, there's a town center and it's two miles to a, a state forest. Well, if you were able to align the property owners between the state forest and that community to give them some compensation uh, in lieu of the taxes that the, they're lost or pay for the taxes, you know, that would be a, a beneficial arrangement. It's the kind of thing that I see trail groups in the future negotiating with property owners on. So you put Pennsylvania kind of in the middle of the pack nationally. Uh, so there's some room for improvement in this law. What else would you, would PEC, like to see change in the future? Well, there's two things. And we actually did try to work uh, on this bill as it was going through the committees. We originally got some language in that we really liked and unfortunately didn't make it into the final bill. Uh, one of the interesting things about Pennsylvania is that it says it, it says recreation is defined as but not limited to, and then it proceeds to list out a bunch of uh, opportunities. Interestingly, one of the things that it is not included is bicycles. That seems like an obvious one. Well, it would be an obvious one, yeah. So that was one piece of it that we wanted to work on. Uh, the other thing, too, is that this, this liability is limited to whoever owns the property. And in Pennsylvania, a lot of times there's volunteer trail groups that are maintaining the property. Uh, and so we wanted to get some language in there that would offer coverage to people who were volunteering to maintain trails, nonprofit organizations and, and groups such as that, that that really promote these opportunities, but maybe opening up the, themselves to liability because they made a map for the property or something like that. Um, that was language we had worked hard to get included. It was included in a version of the bill, and unfortunately, it didn't make it through. So in lieu of the more sort of comprehensive protections that we might like to see, are there any resources available for property owners and, and organizations uh, to maybe purchase liability insurance that they otherwise couldn't, couldn't afford? Or what are, are there any workarounds that we can, 
put forward here? Well, any organization who's, who's in this world really does need to have liability insurance. Uh, I mean, as I was saying before, there's nothing to stop someone from suing you for stupid reasons. Uh, but at the same time, you know, you pay the insurance so that you've got some, somebody to argue in your behalf. Uh, so, you know, for instance, uh, one of our Pennsylvania Environmental Council's uh, sister organizations is Power, the Pennsylvania Organization of Watersheds and Rivers. Uh, they offer insurance to watershed organizations, general liability insurance. There are national organizations such as uh, the League of American Bicyclists, uh, American Hiking Society, um, other groups out there that are affinity organizations that offer their members uh, liability insurance at a group rate. That's something that's closer resembles uh, the work that they do. And that's one of the hard things about uh, general liability insurance is that you need to have it a policy that's written to cover the kind of work you do. And it's really expensive to get it on your own, so it's better to go in with a group of people working in the same area. Well, our listeners can learn more about Act 98, along with other bills and policy proposals that are related to the environment and to conservation on the PEC Bill Tracker. You'll find that under the Policy tab on the PEC website, which is, of course, at PECPA.org. Frank McGuire runs the Statewide Trails and Recreation Program for PEC. Frank, thanks for the update. Hey, thanks for having me, Josh. Pennsylvania's two biggest cities are getting a couple million dollars each in order to expand and speed up ongoing greenhouse gas emission reduction programs. Bloomberg Philanthropies named Pittsburgh and Philadelphia last month as two of the 20 cities that will be funded through the American Cities Climate Challenge. Let's hear now from the two top city officials heading up those initiatives. First up, it's Grant Irvin, Chief Resilience Officer for the City of Pittsburgh. Let's talk about what Pittsburgh has been doing in the area of climate and, and sustainability generally, mm-hmm. and and then tell me how this new opportunity plays into to what's already happening in Pittsburgh. Sure. So uh, over the past few years, we've been really involved in developing our climate action plan. So it's the city's third climate action plan. We call it uh, Pittsburgh Climate Action Plan 3.0. Um, so you give that little moniker to it. And what it does is effectively drive a little bit deeper into the work that we've done in the past with regards to mitigation. So there's two types of climate action strategies, mitigation and adaptation strategies, mm-hmm. and this one is effectively a mitigation strategy. So looking at how effectively the city and its partners can reduce carbon emissions through the different activities that we have developed. So uh, the plan has six different strategies or categories that we focus in on, uh, ranging from uh, food and carbon sequestration, which are two new categories, as well as mobility, buildings, energy generation, and transmission um, are are the other categories that we focus in on. And uh, one of the things that we did was to help, you know, first start that process was develop an emissions inventory. Mm -hmm. So we partnered with a host of local partners called the Pittsburgh Climate Initiative, so nonprofit, university, Um, and then municipal partners that all come together to kind of understand what these trends um, and impacts means with regards to their operations, but also things that they can do. And the first step was to develop the emissions inventory. So partnering with Carnegie Mellon and the University of Pittsburgh and a group called uh, the American Geophysical Union and Thriving Earth Exchange, we partnered together to get a better understanding of those emissions and our profile. So when you look at the city of Pittsburgh and the amount of emissions that we produce, 
we have about 4 million metric tons CO2 equivalent that are our kind of profile. And then mm-hmm. it breaks into a, a pie chart of diversion or, you know, differentiation between the transportation sector and the building sector, which are our two largest. About 80% of emissions come from buildings, both commercial, industrial, and residential. And then about 18 to 20% comes from the transportation sector, and then the, r- the remainder comes from waste. Um, and then in each of those six categories that I mentioned, we work on different strategies or have identified different strategies to cut those emissions in those sectors. Uh, and with that, we've created what we call the 150-0 um, kind of goals. So 100% renewable electricity, 100% fossil fuel-free fleet, as well as 50% emissions reduction and zero waste are kind of how we've targeted um, all of our objectives uh, out to the year 2030. Um, so that gives us a you know effectively a 12-year time horizon in which to achieve those emissions reduction targets. Um, when you talk about the, the the Bloomberg Challenge and and why we were applicants, one of the things that the Bloomberg Challenge um, and why we signed up and applied for it was we are interested in accelerating the adoption of our climate action strategies. So finding ways in which we can bring, uh, you know, quicker adoption of mode shift and uh, and fuel shift in the transportation sector, or advancing energy efficiency in commercial buildings, or expanding the amount of renewable electricity that we consume uh, within the city's operations. Um, those are the different strategies, and what Bloomberg looks at is um, how do we do that in a two-year time frame. Um, so the objective is really to bring in. Uh, different technical resources as, as well as staffing capacity to the city to help us accelerate a lot of things that we already have in queue. And, you know, clearly the Bloomberg people were impressed by what you already have in queue. I, I got to think there's also a, a symbolic component to the choice that they made mm-hmm. at, at Pittsburgh. It, it says something to choose Pittsburgh for something like this? Yeah, I, I think we've made, um, you know, we've been in the headlines a lot lately with regards to, um, you know, the role and what we've been doing. Uh, with regards to our our stances on climate change and the work that we've done in terms of research and and deployment of different technologies, as well as the mayor's leadership, obviously, uh, in in making sure that you know Pittsburgh is a, adhering to uh, the challenges of the Paris Climate Accord. Um, so we've been a part of um, you know a group of cities nationally as well as internationally, really trying to put our best foot forward in terms of addressing the issues of climate change, and that's. Uh, I think is specifically important for a place like Pittsburgh um, because we're, you know, in this space where industry had such a large root in uh, both our formation as well as our development and our decline and then our now our resurgence. Uh, so, you know, being from a place where steel and coal and gas um, are at the epicenter of the economy and trying to figure out ways in which to um, acknowledge that history and that past but also address these challenges um, of, of, of climate change, um, I think really makes us a critical part of that conversation, um, as well as developing those solutions around it. So, so it's, it, it's part of who we are and, you know, what we look to form in the future. So when you look at the emissions inventory, is the idea kind of to identify the places where you can have the biggest immediate impact and kind of work your way down the list from there? Yeah, it, it starts to become a, a, a key performance indicator uh, with regards to making smarter decisions in terms of how you can make uh, a strategic decision with regards to carbon mitigation. Um, so not knowing where those emissions come from, you're kind of flying blind. 
Um, so when we start to make that analysis and understand the majority of our emissions are coming from building energy consumption, uh, we started to kind of peel that onion back a little bit further. So following our emissions inventory, we work with the National Energy Technology Lab, uh, for example, which is part of the national lab system and based uh, about 30 miles south of Pittsburgh on an energy optimization analysis. Mm -hmm. And that energy optimization analysis was also um, set up by the precursor of doing a regional energy consumption Sankey diagram. Um, you know, so understanding where generation is occurring, how energy is being transmitted, and how people are consuming it. And what you effectively see in that, and this isn't, uh, you know, uh, special in Pittsburgh's case, but most regions, is that there's a lot of inefficiency in terms of generation and delivery. Um, and what that uh, helped us do is to understand then, you know, what are some of the strategies that we can deploy at the local level to encourage greater efficiency and optimize <laughs> you know, the resources that we have with regards to energy consumption. Uh, so, you know, that then starts to get us to think about district energy and microgrids, for example, um, as a way to deliver thermal heating, but also as a way to create locally sourced energy production predominantly um, by giving us the ability to more strategically interject renewables into right. the grid. Um, it gets us to start to think about uh, 2030 districts, for example. So Pittsburgh has two of the largest 2030 district uh, uh, zones, you know, in the country where we're looking collectively as commercial building owners to reduce our energy and water consumption by 50 percent by the year 2030. So that's a target. But underneath that target starts to create a host of policies that we've started to develop as well as partnerships uh, between building owners and the nonprofit sector um, and local government to create the policies that enable those goals to be attained. Um, you know, so for example, we, you know, mundane things that people might not find exciting, but, you know, we changed the Pittsburgh garage lighting code that enabled uh, parking garages to utilize uh, LED lights. I mean, who knew? But before, you know, uh, before 2014, we weren't able to do that. Um, you know, we've also adopted a commercial energy benchmarking and transparency ordinance, which um, allows or, excuse me, encourages building owners and operators to provide their utility consumption to the city of Pittsburgh. Um, and what that does is it, it simply creates kind of a dashboard effect that allows you to understand what you're consuming and then allow for kind of those strategic targeted interventions in terms of either improving the building envelope or updating equipment, um, which is good for the environment, but also good for the economy right. um, because you're starting to create more jobs in the building ret you know, retrofit space. You're starting to buy more equipment and materials that start to modernize buildings. And probably most importantly, it provides for a healthier environment for people working in those spaces. Um, so you start to create all these co-benefits. Um, that doesn't start but for the process of developing these key performance indicators. That's very much in line with what you were saying earlier about the need to have information as a, as a starting point. Mm -hmm. uh, moving beyond that, though, as, as uh, building owners have a better sense of how they're consuming energy, what uh, resources or policies can the city deploy, carrots and sticks, to actually help them make positive changes? Yeah, uh, you know, a couple of really good examples. I mean, one, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll give you two. One is... Uh, the work that we have done most recently with our Eco Innovation District project. So the Eco Innovation District is effectively the 
the neighborhoods of Uptown, West Oakland, and the portions of Downtown. So if you're familiar with Pittsburgh and uh, you start at the, um, you know, the, the PPG Paints Arena and work your, all, your way all the way to the, the western edge of Oakland uh, and the university hospital sector, you, you drive through a neighborhood of Uptown. And uh, about five years ago, we started with a conversation around deploying uh, a bus rapid transit program through that corridor. And what we quick, quickly realized was it's not just about transportation. Um, if you go through uh, the Uptown corridor, there's already a tons of bus stops and multiple routes that go through that corridor. But there was definitely an opportunity to improve the quality of transit through the neighborhood, but also in, in improve different uh, you know, other modes of transit, walking or transportation, other uh, such as walking and biking and things of that nature. But more importantly, we created a community plan around that. And the community was able to come together and develop a vision to think about land use and transport and energy in a more holistic way as part of how the community grows and develops. And in fact, one of the first projects to come out of the ground has been our, our new district energy plant. Um, so providing uh, thermal heating first for Mercy Hospital and its, its new uh, expansion, but also for other commercial and residential development that's in queue for the community. That's important from an uh, infrastructure modernization standpoint, but also uh, from the ability of, to start to intersect lower carbon intensity types of energy um, consumption and production facilities. The other kind of tool that we're looking at um, involves state policy, and it's where partners like Peck and others have been really helpful um, in, in developing the state's uh, CPACE program. Right. You know, so here CPACE um, is an opportunity for commercial properties to use their assessments to find new tools in terms of how they finance those energy efficiency or renewable energy projects. Um, so we're in the process right now of working with local partners, um, statewide partners as well, uh, as well as Allegheny County to start to create a local CPACE program to take what the governor signed and adopt that locally. Um, that's going to give a new tool um, in terms of financing and the wherewithal for building owners to uh, you know, take the information that they have through the benchmarking ordinance that we created to start to make those strategic interventions. And, so, and that's for the commercial sector only so far, yes? That's correct. Is that's correct. residential pace coming someday, or is that something you're thinking about? Uh, you're going to have to ask some of the folks across the hall here at, at PEC to see if that's something that's coming down the pike. Earlier you mentioned local generation opportunities, and I know that one other thing that's been happening in Harrisburg is enabling legislation for community solar. Is that something that's, that's on your plate? Most definitely. I mean, I think we've seen through the development of the Climate Action Plan, um, you know, specifically as we were doing resident engagement, um, which was a key component to us kind of gathering input and creating the strategy, was that this was definitely an opportunity that residents wanted to buy into. Mm -hmm. um, you know, not everybody's house is available for rooftop solar. Um, not all folks are interested in, you know, buying renewable power that comes from a wind farm in West Texas. Um, so finding ways in which we can utilize the land assets we have, the, the large kind of vacant rooftops, if, if you will, that, that are available to provide those tools to allow and enable residents um, to have a local choice that is in front of them and responsibly integrate that with our local utility providers is a great tool that we, we should have here in Pennsylvania. Can you talk a bit about how sustainability figures in the larger sort of economic agenda for the city? I know that like when you're trying to attract, say, an, an Amazon, that's part of the yeah. calculation, yes? 
Yeah, I, I, uh, somebody said to me one time, and this was early when I started with the city, the city doesn't have an economic development strategy. Um, and and we took a lot of umbrage of that because actually, you know, the strategies we are deploying are the economic development strategy, whether that it's cleaning or improving our environment or, uh, you know, an, an equity conversation um, and workforce development and making sure that all of our residents have an access to the new economy and the new opportunities that are coming to Pittsburgh, that is economic development. Um, you know, so one of the things that we've really honed on, in on, you know, just from the environmental space um, is that intersection between technology, the environment, um, and the clean tech sector, if you will. So really thinking about kind of the, the dots that can be connected between, uh, you know, artificial intelligence and machine learning and robotics, which are, you know, really kind of growth sectors here in Pittsburgh. How does that equate into a sustainability agenda? So one of the things that we have done as the city is to really use the city as a laboratory to test and deploy new project or new products, new materials um, in terms of whether that's lighting or sensors. Uh, we've also created a program called PGH Labs, which allows kind of those early stage ventures who might not have uh, kind of the you know even, even the basis of funding. But they have a product as a way to kind of utilize the city as a test platform. Um, you know, we worked with a, a company a few months ago, for example, that uh, was developing sensors for uh, uh, airflow dampers that, you know, you see above us here um, to help regulate airflow and, and kind of temperature. Um, they got their start by working hand-in-hand -hand with the city. Mm -hmm. um, likewise, we've done a lot with University of Pittsburgh, and that, that company came from out of Pitt, actually, and then another firm from Carnegie Mellon where we've worked closely on developing on a, what's called an energy intelligence network. So this is taking a lot of kind of that data that is uh, generated from building information management systems and uh, the HVAC software and, uh, you know, all those sorts of things to better utilize our energy spend. Um, and that's that's all because of the testing and deploying that we're doing and, and working hand-in-hand -hand with those developers. Now, the Bloomberg uh, program is nationwide. I, th I think it was the, the 100 biggest cities were invited to apply. Mm -hmm. And I know they're still announcing the winners, but last I checked, outside of California, Pennsylvania is the only state that had more than one city represented <laughs> on that list. Is, I mean, is it fair to say that Pennsylvania is becoming or is a national leader in this space? I would say definitely between Pittsburgh and, and Philadelphia, we are at the forefront. I mean, uh, the city of Philadelphia and Christine Knapp and the work they do is um, top-notch. And we, we look to them for many things, um, you know, in terms of some of the work that they're doing in, in, with regards to energy efficiency and energy procurement. Um, you know, Philadelphia has really been kind of out in front in that space. Um, they did a lot of, of, of kind of uh, mentoring for us in the City Energy Project, which is a, a program that preceded the Bloomberg Climate Challenge around energy benchmarking and transparency. So, um, you know, we've, we've tried to follow the lead from Philadelphia in that respect. Um, but also, you know, on our, on our kind of side of the state or our side of the mountain, you know, one of the things that we've been really attuned to is to work with other, other post-industrial cities, if you will. So like the Clevelands and Cincinnati's and Buffalo's of the world, because given our size, as well as our history, we have a lot of similarities in place. Mm -hmm. um, so we've created a thing called the Urban Transitions Alliance, uh, which consists of those cities that I mentioned, but also international exchanges with cities like Malmo, Sweden, and uh, 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 Glasgow in the UK, Glasgow, Scotland, uh, as well as uh, German cities like Dortmund and Essen. 
um, to really start to share kind of those learnings between cities. Um, and that's one of the things that we're excited about this. I think uh, having both Philadelphia and Pittsburgh um, as part of the Bloomberg Challenge, you know, one of our common causes is how do we start to kind of up the game of sustainability and, and renewable energy and those aspects across Pennsylvania? Um, so we have, you know, recently in uh, the city of Lancaster, they have brought on uh, a sustainability manager. Um, so can we get other cities across PA thinking the same way with regards to how do I be, you know, a better manager of my energy spend and how do I start to think about green and natural infrastructure and our buildings in a more um, uh, formidable way? Um, so the Erie's, the Harrisburg's, Wilkes-Barre, Scranton's and all those places in between, um, you know, we look to partner with them as well with kind of the knowledge that we're developing. So hopefully we can create those intersections as well. Well, congratulations again on the funding, and and thanks for spending some time with us today. Great. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Next, over to Philly, where I met up with Christine Knapp, who you heard Grant Irvin mention just now. She is director of the city's Office of Sustainability. Philadelphia has been working on, obviously, sustainability and, and climate action for some time now. Is this, I mean, it would be fair to say that this Bloomberg stuff is going to uh, sort of be a continuation or an enhancement of existing ongoing work, or is this going to set some new things in motion? Yeah, I think we would look at it as <clears throat> sort of deepening and uh, scaling up some of the work that we've already been doing for a while. Um, it actually came at a great time for us. We just completed um, the Powering Our Future, which was a clean energy vision for Philadelphia's built environment um, that out- outlined a number of opportunities. And it also we also just finished Connect, which was a strategic transportation plan. Um, and so with both of those plans in place, we were ready to start implementing some of the programs and policies uh, that were outlined. And so here comes along some additional technical support and staff support and funds to help us really move things faster and, and uh, harder than we maybe would have been able to do on our own. And so those two categories, the commercial buildings and, and transportation, that's really the lion's share of, of carbon emissions in the city. Right, yeah. Uh, 80% of our carbon footprint in Philadelphia comes from buildings and industry and 17% from transportation. So those are our two big sources to tackle. And that was the focus of the Bloomberg Grant. Starting with buildings then, what have you been working on and uh, what, if anything, changes with the, with the new money? So we've already had a benchmarking program in Philadelphia for about six years that requires our biggest buildings over 50,000 square feet to annually disclose to us their energy consumption. We make that public, and the idea there is to get both the building managers to start understanding you know, their energy consumption so they see where there's opportunity to become more efficient, um, but also allows the tenants or the potential buyers to look at those scores as well and understand you know, if they're going to be renting and having to pay the bills for a place, maybe they want to be in a more efficient building. Um, so now, you know, it's been six years on, we've seen some gains and improvements in buildings, but there's, you know, sort of a question of what's next, how do we get uh, further action. So we've, we've conceived of a like, tune-up program where the sort of lower performing buildings would be required to do an annual tune-up, or not annual, but a tune-up that they would, on some basis, we haven't determined whether that's, you know, every three years, five years, ten years, but on some basis that makes sense. We know that they've, you know, looked at their building systems, they are making corrections to them, and they're making them operate as efficiently as they can, which is different than requiring a retrofit, right? We're just asking them to tune up their existing systems to work as optimally as possible, which is generally a low-cost investment with, you know, 
really you know, tend to be maybe 5 to 20% increase in efficiency in that building for very low or no cost options. So that's the type of program that we could stand up with some additional technical guidance, working with the building community, working with other advocates um, to figure out you know, what's the right sort of mechanism to make that um, happen, how do we collect that information, how do we share it publicly. Um, so that's something we've pitched that we think is a real opportunity for us and builds on our past work. And that's happening at the commercial level. What are you doing with uh, you know, more grassrootsy? Are you providing resources or assistance to help Philadelphians who want to be more sustainable in their energy consumption? Yeah, so similar to how the benchmarking program was oriented at giving both building owners and users the information about the energy efficiency of the building, we don't really have that kind of information in the residential space. So right now, if you're buying a house or you're looking to rent an apartment, Um, or a full house, you don't really know what you're getting into in terms of your energy bills. So we have been also thinking about trying to provide time of sale disclosure requirements for residential sales and or a landlord um, disclosure requirement as well. So that again, it's not just commercial properties who have access to that information, but anybody in the city who's looking to live somewhere um, would also be able to know what what they're in store for so they don't get slammed with a bill that they can't afford months into living in a, into a, a space. So that's something we're looking to, to set up as well. And, and I believe you're shooting for 100% renewables by 2035, is that? Well, we have, goes? yeah, we have a, a city renewable electricity goal of 100% renewable electricity by 2035. Um, so we already are underway with a power purchase agreement. Um, we're actually hoping to have it introduced in city council this month um, for approval. So that would allow us to buy about 20 to 25% of the city's electricity uh, from a, a new you know, solar, wind, uh, renewable energy developer um, to you know, increase the amount of renewables on the grid and really give the city the ability to lead by example. Um, what we're excited about is that other large uh, electricity buyers are also interested in following suit. So our SEPTA has already issued an RFP to do a power purchase agreement and we're talking to some universities as well. So we're, we've also put into our Bloomberg uh, proposal that we could support an institutional procurement collaborative around renewable energy to make sure that folks are able to do it. They have the tech support they need. Um, They're able to financially make it work. Um, So we think there's a lot of opportunity to grow the power purchase agreement market to really sort of clean up our grid for the region. You talked about uh, leading by example. Uh, What role, if any, does Philadelphia have to play in kind of pushing Pennsylvania or the the region maybe more broadly? Yeah, um, we've identified in Powering Our Future in that report I mentioned earlier um, some of the things that either the state or federal government, you know, kind of need action. Certainly cities are leading by example and, um, you know, a lot of private corporations are as well, but there are limitations to what cities can do. Um, there are some things that can only be done at the state or federal level, and so we've identified some of those um, some of those actions. So one thing in particular we think could be impactful is community solar, uh, which currently Pennsylvania does not allow, but there is legislation right now be, you know, being considered that would enable uh, community solar, which we think could be a nice opportunity for Philadelphians who, whether it's because their you know roof is slanted the wrong way or it's shaded or whatever, their their home doesn't make sense for solar, could still be able to get the benefits of solar by buying into a community solar program. So that's something we would hope that the Pennsylvania legislature would do. And I think the power purchase agreements um, may also start building support for solar throughout the state because a lot of those projects are going to be built 
in parts of the state where the, maybe the legislators aren't currently advocates for solar, but maybe once they see the economic development impact of, of those solar projects, we'll start to see it as a, another important tool for revitalization of their area. So um, we hope that they'll come around and, and pass that bill. One thing we do have enabling legislation for now is, is commercial pace. Is how is that playing out here? Yeah, so we our city council will also have to pass that you know bill to to enable it locally. So we're in conversations right now, sort of understanding um, all of the players in terms of um, you know the revenue department and the office of property assessment and the finance office and all the players to sort of figure out what a program like that could look like. Um, we uh, have a very close relationship with the Philadelphia Energy Authority. Uh, who we know is also really interested in, in playing a role and has been sort of speaking with uh, other constituents around the state um, to sort of make sure that we have some uh, commonalities in programs so that, you know, we're all kind of moving a program forward um, that makes sense for, for the whole state. So um, we're interested in seeing how that plays out and um, having another tool in the tool belt for commercial buildings to be able to finance their energy efficiency retrofits. Back to community solar, mm-hmm. is that something you're, you're seeing a lot of demand for among residents of the city? Are people asking for it? Yeah, people ask for solar in Philadelphia a lot. It's um, maybe one of the top things that we hear from folks. Um, you know, we know it's a, it's a tool for people to reduce their energy bills. You know, it's an it's a investment up front, but then you're kind of almost have a no or a very low bill over time. Um, and you know, people feel like it can help create local jobs in Philadelphia, whoever has to install it and, the, and maintain it. Um, so it, there is a drive for solar of all kinds. We have a pretty popular Solarize program going on right now as well that signed up hundreds of homes uh, for new solar installations. And community solar could, again, just be another piece, particularly for those who can't do you know, more traditional solar panels. Are there other things that the city can do or cities generally could do to sort of um, empower people along those lines and maybe create more of a market for renewable energy sources that, people, that are accessible at the consumer level? Yeah, I mean, I think solar solarized programs are a great model for that, right? I mean, all the city really had to do was help find a couple of vendors who agreed to, you know, lower prices if the more people that signed up for it. And after that, you know, it's, it's, it sort of flew off the shelf in terms of, of interest, which would be a little bit harder for individuals to do on their own to sort of negotiate, you know, find five or 10 or 20 friends and negotiate a bigger, a bigger deal. So that's something that is a, an easy role for the city to play. Um, or the energy authority in this case to play to help you know broker those deals, um, do the advertising, answer the questions because people always can you know can have concerns. What about my you know what about my roof? What about this? What about that? So um, it's a pretty easy role for for us to play. And then you know the, the sort of the demand has been driving. Um, we only had intentions to to do one round, and now it looks like there'll be at least three rounds of Solarize. So it's uh, it's a great thing to see. I know they haven't announced all of the grant recipients yet, but I believe so far, aside from California, Pennsylvania is the only one that has two, two cities. Yeah. So are, is Pennsylvania becoming a national leader in this area? I think Pennsylvania had, has been a leader. Um, I think we maybe lost our way for a little bit, but um, you know, we were one of the first states in the country to set up an alternative energy portfolio standard in 2005, I believe, um, which really helped to grow the renewable energy market in Pennsylvania for a long time. Our SREC value, you know, in, the, in those years after was 300-ish, $350. Um, so we, we saw a lot of growth in that area. Um, you know, we, we have a lot of sort of natural resources that have long been the backbone of our state's economy. So I think we've been leaders for a long time. Um, I think this is a t- demonstration of the fact that cities have now also found a way to sort of bring um, you know, bring sustainability and climate action to the ground and getting more of their own residents engaged in that fight. 
And uh, with the acknowledgement that this is also kind of up in the air with, with the Bloomberg money, but what else can you tell me about how that's going to be spent in Philadelphia, potentially? Yeah, so we know we get a city advisor, which is great. So that's an you know, entire person that will be housed in our office to help us implement um, the, the programs that will be you know, uh, advancing with their support. Um, you always need more staff to carry things out, so that's really helpful. We also know we'll have access to some of the other technical advisors. There's a sort of whole team of people behind the Bloomberg Challenge from NRDC, Rocky Mountain Institute, NatCo. You know, so we'll be able to sort of tap into some of those experts, um, you know, to get their vi- guidance, advice. Um, we even have uh, been able to talk about p- using some of their messaging and communications expertise, um, particularly I think in our in the transportation programs. Um, we don't have a public transportation advocacy organization in this in the city, so we have a bicycle coalition and a pedestrian advocacy group, but none for public transit. So it would be interesting to think about how to create a, a sort of stakeholder table for around transit as we do a bus remapping uh, program for for SEPTA's buses. Um, so how do we sort of you know best communicate those changes, engage people in that process, poll people perhaps along the way. Um, so that's expertise that, you know, it's expensive generally to hire pollsters or hire communication experts. So if we can tap into Bloomberg for that, um, you know, that would be great. And we didn't really talk about the transportation piece of it, but what has Philadelphia already been doing in the transportation space? Yeah, we've been, you know, installing bike infrastructure for the last decade or so. We, you know, we've increased uh, the number of bike lanes, but also Indigo Bike Share, which is, um, we like to say, the most equitable bike share system in the country. It has sort of the m- most users of color and um, has a low-income um, program so that folks who are any on any public assistance programs are able to get discounted rates and using the program. Um, so really, I think we, we want to see more investments in that area to make biking and walking and transit sort of the option, you know, the option of choice for people in Philadelphia. Um, and m- we have a goal of increasing those the use of those areas by 5% by 2025, which we think we'll be able to do with, with some additional support. Um, I think we've been working with SEPTA, you know, rolling out SEPTA key, but now that it's here, thinking about how to sort of best use that to achieve some additional use in the bus network or in other transportation. So maybe there is there a way to connect SEPTA key with bike share so that you just need one card to access both things. So there's a lot, a lot of things, but I think part of the, that communication and engagement strategy I mentioned is we also want to hear from people who are users or would-be users of transportation systems in the city of what they think are the, you know, what are the nudges that they need, what are the tools they need to help facilitate the use of it. We know, like, real-time information is something people talk a lot about with the bus system. Like, how do you know if you're standing on a corner, you know, when the next bus is going to be there? So the apps and things that can help people feel comfortable that there's, there is a bus coming in a couple minutes, you know, you're not going to miss your morning meeting. Um, so there's lots of different, you know, there's things we've already been doing, but there, and, and we've been collecting, you know, information over a long time, but now it's time to scale that up. This might be getting a little bit of field, but um, I, I mentioned it because PEC is involved uh, with the Circuit Trails Coalition, a big push to build trails uh, around greater Philadelphia, and I know that part of the thinking behind that is people live in the suburbs, work in the city, want um uh, want a better way into town. Is that something that, that you're involved in? Is that part of the, the strategy? It's not in Connect specifically, the transportation plan, but we do have a trails um, sort of working group in the city, and there are you know goals to add new tra- you know, trail um, mileage. I forget what the exact goals are. I'd have to look it up. <laughs> but we do have that you know as part of our general um, accessibility um, strategy in addition to you know our healthy sort of mobility um, strategy as well. So we I think we have seen 
a bunch of investments obviously along our waterfronts. I know Pittsburgh has as well in terms of adding more trails for, for recreation, um, which not only you know add that, that recreational aspect, but also have helped to revitalize the communities around those areas. People like to live near you know beautiful trails and, and revitalize waterfronts. Well, Christine, uh, thanks for your time and congratulations again. Thank you. And that's all for Pennsylvania Legacies this time around. Thanks for listening and be sure to check out the next episode, which will be out in a couple of weeks. We release new shows every other Friday at peckpa.org. That is our website where you can stream all of those episodes, including our entire back catalog. Or you can get us as a podcast anywhere podcasts are found. Uh, Apple Podcasts works as does SoundCloud, Stitcher, Player.fm, and uh, Google Play, as well as many others. Wherever you find this show, it always helps if you take a moment to review us favorably, we hope. And uh, if you're so inclined, a rating goes even further. The best way to spread the word, of course, is word of mouth. If you know anybody that's interested in these issues, please send them our way. If you haven't been to the PEC website at PECPA.org, you will find lots of information on all of the program work that Pennsylvania Environmental Council does in energy and climate, along with watersheds, trails and recreation, communities and landscapes, and policy. Again, PECPA.org is the website. At PECPA is the Twitter feed. And, of course, you'll find us on Facebook just like everybody else. Stop by and say hi. For the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, I'm Josh Rollerson, and as always, thanks for listening. Thank you.